This is the Darcy Jarreau Podcast, episode 15. Today, my guest is Matt Bufton from the Institute for Liberal Studies. We're going to be talking about the good work that they do there, spreading classical liberal ideas. Welcome, Matt Bufton. How are you, sir? I'm doing really well, Darcy. Pleasure to be here. How are you? Doing good, yeah. Uh, I'm really glad that we were able to make this work. Uh, we had a call scheduled for a week and a half ago, but you, being in Ottawa, were stuck without power for a few days. Uh, what was that like? And, and how did uh, it, it was. It ha- well, I'm, I'm also curious how it even happened because I didn't really follow yeah. the story. Yeah, it was actually happened, uh, I think it was May 23rd, it was a Saturday, we had uh, some thunderstorms and rain in the forecast, and then we got these uh, alerts on the TV and our phones saying, you know, a really severe thunderstorm might be coming through, Um, and uh, then about 3.30 or so in the afternoon, this really intense wind, rain came through. Uh, a lot of people thought it might be a tornado. We had a tornado touchdown in this area about four years ago. I'm in the south part of Ottawa. Turns out it was something called the Derecho or Derecho. I'm probably mispronouncing that. But it's a big line of very high winds. So 120 kilometer hour winds sort of sustained and gusts of up to 190 kilometers an hour. That sort of tore mostly across the south end of the um, uh, or southern portion of the, of the city. And it took down about 300 telephone poles, about four of those big steel uh, transmission towers that carry the wires were bent in half. And that knocked out power for a lot of people for a long time. So right after the storm, something like half of the city of Ottawa was without power. Um, and almost everybody has power now. It's, uh, we're now almost three weeks uh, past it. And uh, there's a very small number of people without power still. In our case, uh, we were without power for one week and four hours, um, which is by far the longest I've experienced a power outage before. Uh, As to how it was, not as bad as I might have expected. We moved into a new house last fall. Very happy to say we got a gas stove in the new house. So we were able to keep cooking with a barbecue lighter to spark the stove. Our water heater kept going. I'm told if it might have been a high-efficiency water heater, the power might have stopped it actually uh, being able to generate hot water. So I guess we have a low-efficiency model. And if I have one practical tip for homeowners out there, if you're getting a uh, water heater put in, perhaps you want to make sure it's low-efficiency so that it maintains you know, hot water during a power outage. So we were able to cook, we were able to shower, do dishes, and perhaps most importantly, make coffee. We have a hand grinder, we have a French press, and we could boil a saucepan of water on the stove. We made it okay. Um, not having refrigeration is kind of a pain. It was, you know, a lot of trips to the store to get ice. We took some of our food, put it in friends' freezers. Some of it we've still got to, got to go back and collect. And, and so we made it, but it's not an experience I'm hoping to, uh, to reproduce. Yeah, absolutely. I, uh, yeah, it's actually seems crazy to me that in, uh, where are you in Ottawa? Yeah, we're in Ottawa and we're sort of near the South portion, sort of nearish the airport. Yeah. Yeah. It, it seems crazy to me that, uh, a place like that in Canada could lose power for so long, but I guess it happens. 
It happened. I mean, actually, I'm not sure that this has happened quite before. Uh, there's two notable events uh, in living memory that have had similar effects. One was the tornado of 2018, um, and one was the ice storm of, I think that was 1998. We didn't live in Ottawa at that time. The ice storm was you know, freezing rain. That the weight caused a lot of the electrical uh, equipment to, to fail. The tornado, of course, just localized high winds. But neither of those uh, had this sort of wide-scale damage that this, uh, this storm that we experienced uh, brought on. Um, you know, I know that there are people who think this is a sign of climate change, and we will get many of more of these to come, and they might be right. But it's hard to know. These are such random sort of fluke events. No one really, you know, uh, I don't think saw this coming. And I, I did read a quote from one of the hydro officials sort of, you know, saying as to what they could have done to prepare. Well, nobody really builds infrastructure to withstand winds of 190 kilometers an hour. Uh, so there have been a lot of calls that we should bury uh, more of the lines in Ottawa. And that seems reasonable. Maybe that would have helped. But my very weak understanding of electricity infrastructure is some of it is above ground. The main backbones you do not bury, uh, even though you might bury things in residential neighborhoods. And there's a limit to how tough you were going to practically be able to, to build those things. So I'm hoping this was a once-in-a-lifetime fluke, and we'll tell our children about it, uh, where you're both going to be too young to, uh, to remember it, although uh, we're both around for it. And hopefully it will seem a strange thing to them, too, and not a regular occurrence. Well, the reason I wanted to have you on was to talk about your organization, the Institute for Liberal Studies. Can you give us an overview of what your mission is and, and what you guys are doing to accomplish it? Yeah, sure. So our sort of you know, motto uh, is that we're spreading the ideas of liberty in Canada. And so what we are looking to do is sort of have a lot of discussions around what I you know, could call classical liberalism. And I think for you and, and a good chunk of your listeners, when I say classical liberalism, they'll have an idea of what that means for people who are less you know, sort of versed in philosophy and political theory. Um, that may seem a bit of a confusing uh, concept. So what we're interested in is the, uh, the ideas of both political and economic freedom. And really, this comes from a place of, uh, you know, being a, when I was younger, a person who was interested in you know, politics and public policy and sort of realizing that you have in Canada, I mean, it's a spectrum. We don't just have the two parties in the U.S. You, you've got just those two parties. But there's a tendency for different sides of the political spectrum to focus on different freedoms. So here in Canada, for you know, our federal conservative party and the various provincial conservative parties, will tend to, you know, at least rhetorically, put an emphasis on economic freedom, lower taxes, balanced budgets, uh, reasonable regulations, those sorts of things. We could have a whole other conversation, how good they are actually living up to that. But at least in rhetoric and perception, that's their focus. On the other side, you've got left-wing parties, you know, the NDP, maybe the liberals, depending on where you are and, and you know, the, the current leader and, and things like that, will put more focus on a different set of liberties and talk about civil liberties and political liberties. Um, and some people think that there's you know, tension between these liberties, that you've got to sort of pick what is most important to you. And I reject that. 
I say no. It's, you know, I'm interested in both economic and political freedoms. I'm sad to say I don't really see a, a viable political party that I think really advances that vision. And I know there are libertarian parties and you know, really now it seems like a whole bunch of sort of small parties. Um, and if I thought one of them was, uh, you know, making good progress, I would probably be happy to, to support them and, and, you know, put my vote for whatever it matters behind them. But we're stuck with the political process as it is. And, uh, and so I, about 10, 15 years ago, became quite disillusioned with politics and thought, couldn't there be somewhere where we could talk about ideas? Through a group in the U.S. called the Institute for Humane Studies, which is amazing. Any of your American listeners, especially students, should check them out. I went to one of their seminars in the States and was connected with Peter Jaworski, who, along with myself and my wife, Janet, is one of the co-founders of the Institute for Liberal Studies. So we're looking to provide a space that's not about politics in the sense of partisan uh, government and that sort of stuff. Hey, we're interested in creating a space, uh, you know, especially for university students in Canada, but not only for university students, where people can come together and discuss these ideas uh, free of the context of certainly partisan politics. Um, and we want to talk about sort of you know, human freedom, human flourishing, what makes free societies, uh, what is good in free societies, what limits, if any, should there be on the nature of, of human freedoms and and we want to create a really open intellectual atmosphere at all of our events. And the, the idea is that people will feel free to express their ideas, um, you know, both for what see, might seem like very radical uh, conceptions of freedom that other students want to push back on. Um, but also we have students, you know, come from across the political spectrum. And some of them want to say, no, 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 no. You know, obviously we need whatever the, the law, the regulation, that role from government. How would people possibly? get things like healthcare and education if they weren't provided for the government. And those are the sorts of conversations that we're really interested in having. Mm -hmm. So, um, yeah, so if you could just expand a bit on the type of things that you're you're doing, like obviously you're doing some uh, workshops and conferences and you host these things. Could you just, I want to get into Freedom Week a bit later, but if you just yeah. kind of let us know uh, some of the things you guys are doing to, to make this happen. Yeah, well, you know, in the before times, pre-pandemic, uh, the sort of backbone of our uh, programming were campus visits by speakers. Uh, often we would work with either a professor or a student group to bring a speaker to campus, sort of ask them to advertise the event, arrange a venue, and we would you know, assist with the costs of bringing in a speaker. Now, you know, the past couple of years, that has moved largely online. We've been doing a lot of Zoom things. Now, if anyone's interested in potentially checking out some of those events, they can you know, check out our social media, our website, liberalstudies.ca. We also run a uh, internship uh, program. So we provide uh, students with the chance to work with a public policy-oriented nonprofit. Uh, you're in Calgary. Our friends at the Canadian Constitution Foundation are, are long-time partners with us um, in terms of that. And there's several other groups across Canada that we work with to provide a uh, sort of experience for people who want to go on and uh, talk about freedom um, in, uh, in a career, possibly. We can provide some of that work experience. Uh, we have a podcast, I should mention. Now, I'm the executive producer, so that means I do very little of the actual work, but I'm involved at a very high level in our podcast called The Curious Task. Um, and as obviously, I'm on a podcast. If your listeners are people who like podcasts, please check out The Curious Task. 
Uh, my colleagues, Sabine and Alex, do a great job in putting that together. Uh, and we do sort of an interview-based uh, one-hour discussion that comes out once a week. Yeah, yeah. Well, I'm a, I'm a big fan of, uh, of The Curious Task. I listen quite often. And uh, the name, that, that comes from a Hayek reference, I believe. Is that correct? It does, right. So the, the line is, I hope I'm going to get this correctly, the curious task of economics is to teach men the limits of what they imagine they can design. Now, I think that, uh, that as surely Hayek meant man is in mankind there, although I like to think there's also a particular thing, but a certain kind of hubris of designing societies that may also be a bit of a, a male trait. If you think about sort of the large historical figures that tried to leave their imprint and reform society in the way they thought it should be structured, you're definitely going to largely, if not entirely, come up with a list of men. But to me, it's such an interesting way to think about the study of economics. And this is where I think many of our universities go completely wrong. Students who don't take economics think it is entirely about mathematical models. And even many of the students who do study economics think it is entirely about those math mathematical models. Hayek's sort of message to us and his writings on economics and politics are full of sort of warnings against hubris. And so when he says, you know, to teach men the limits on what we imagine we can design, he wants to tell us that we might have this idea for a utopian thing if we ever had the chance that we would be able to, of course, avoid all of the mistakes that our political leaders make. And, you know, if only we had intelligent and wise men and women leading us, then we would have good programs. Our hospitals would continue to function in a pandemic. Our electricity grid wouldn't fall down when a strong wind sort of came through. But all of these things involve trade-offs. There are limits. When we get the political process involved, things get very messy. And you know, utopias don't tend to turn out the way that the planners wished that they would. Yeah, yeah. No, I, uh, I agree absolutely. And that's why I appreciate the work you guys are doing. Um, so you guys are based in Ottawa, but you do have you know supporters from all over the world. You guys bring in guests and speakers from all over the place. Um, but most of your work is done in Canada. Is that correct? Absolutely, yeah. So our work is Canadian focused. Um, you know, one of the the I guess the benefits of the virtual world we now live in is that Zoom has made our um, our opportunities uh, more accessible to students outside of Canada. But our focus is still on on reaching Canadians. Uh, and for many of our things, our one day seminars, our internship program, those are sort of ne necessarily. Uh, focused and exclusive to Canadians. But you mentioned our Freedom Week seminar. That's a week-long seminar that we've been running since 2014. And that's something that we've always tried to make a space for a few international participants. Because of the kind of atmosphere that we are looking to create, we think that there's a real benefit to having that diversity of experience. And so we look for Canadian students who have different political views, who study in different areas, who come from different parts of the country. We also like to bring in some people from outside of the country, too, when they're able to make it and join us, because we're tackling big questions and we're talking about ideas that are not only applicable to Canada and Canadians, but to you know people, to humans uh, more generally around the world. And it's so interesting to see the conversations about how things may behave in a certain way, 
I know a few years ago, we were having a discussion on, on immigration, and one of the students raised a concern. He'd heard some stuff about what was going on in Sweden at the time related to sort of their immigration policies. We happen to have a student who was from Stockholm there. And so she was able to talk about her actual experience, which was quite different from what he had sort of seen reported on some of the news sites that he was looking at. Um, and I think it's also really important when we have, you know, Canadian students, the, the people that we attract are, are curious, they're interested uh, about ideas, about the way the world works. And one question potentially could be, you know, hey, these ideas sound great. Maybe they work in our context, but how would they work in another context? And so it's so valuable, I think, to have those people from other places to sort of add to that educational experience for the Canadians at our programs. Yeah. So I know that uh, COVID kind of got in the way of Freedom Week for the last couple of years and you guys had moved everything online, but it sounds like this year you're back to an in-person event. So tell us what Freedom Week is going to look like this year. Yeah. Yeah. So we are, knock on wood, going to be back at McGill, one of our favorite locations for Freedom Week. We've done them in various places in Ontario, Quebec, uh, BC, and Alberta. But McGill has the really nice benefit of being a downtown urban campus. Montreal in August is a, is a wonderful place. And so we're really looking forward to going back there. Freedom Week uh, is a week-long conference, as the name implies. We usually start off on the Monday afternoon and carry through. Students will go home on the Saturday. What we want to give people is a chance to really dive deeply into ideas, to hear ideas that they may not be exposed to during their sort of normal uh, university education, um, and then engage with arguments for and against those ideas. So one of the misconceptions that we'll sometimes get is that uh, you know, Freedom Week is going to be exclusively for students who are you know, either libertarians or classical liberals or quite you know, invested and sympathetic to those ideas. Um, and that actually would not be the kind of atmosphere that we're looking to create. Yeah, I mean, you and I, could get together, I'm sure, have a great time talking about our vision of a free society and what human flourishing and real freedom means, and we'd enjoy it. But perhaps after it, not a lot would necessarily have come out of that conversation. So we always look for students, and we'll always get a number of these on the applications. One of my favorite things to see, because we asked them to give us a little essay about why they would like to come. Our students say, well, you know, it's not that I think that I necessarily believe classical liberal ideas are right. It's that I feel like I haven't heard the arguments for them. Because I feel like too many of my professors shared sort of the same political values and perspectives. And it's also, what well, these students will say, that's their perspective. But it hasn't been challenged in a way that they want it to be. Those students are a delight. I will sometimes get faculty or students, um, you know, congratulating us on, on Freedom Week and saying what an amazing experience it is. And of course, that's always really nice. But I think that what makes it so special is uh, is not the sort of work that we do. It's not the professors who are amazing. It's the students and having a unit, a classroom that's full of about thirty-five to forty students who are choosing to spend a week out of their summer, and we don't pay travel, so they have to fly themselves to Montreal. And then they sit in a classroom and listen to lectures on philosophy and politics and economics for hours out of the day. That's a special kind of student. Some of your listeners are probably the kinds of students who, you know, in university were one of one or two students in the classroom who really wanted to have a discussion. 
We wanted to challenge the professor, challenge some of the other students, not because they wanted to just tell them they were wrong, but because they wanted to have a discussion and you know figure out what the truth was, what they believe, what justice is, whatever it might be. We could have a classroom full of those students, and that's a ma- an amazing experience. So at uh, you know many college campuses, uh, as you know, economist Brian Kaplan will point out, you know how how well how much do students want to be there when if the professor says next week's class is canceled because I'm out of town, everybody cheers. Now that shows that you know people are not enjoying the classes, getting the value out of the classes that we think they should be, and so that's really a huge thing that we try to deliver on Freedom Week. We have lectures, we have discussion groups. But a big part of it is the discussion that takes place outside of those sort of formal spaces. We have meals, we have socials, we're spending a week together. People will use breaks to go to a coffee shop or walk around uh, downtown Montreal. And these conversations are constantly taking place. I remember the second year that we did Freedom Week, we had uh, both a PhD student and a first year university student in the seminar. And by luck of the draw, the last names were close together. They were assigned as roommates. And I was talking to the younger of these two students uh, halfway through the week, and he said, it's amazing. I go to the lecture. I have a bunch of questions. There's things that I don't understand, but I think maybe a lot of other people do. So I'm a little shy to ask questions about them. Then I go back to my room, and I talk to my roommate, and we're up half the night speaking about the things that I have questions about from there. And that sort of experience is so hard to find in a modern university classroom. And so we're really proud that we're able to offer it once or twice a year. Yeah, no, that's awesome. Is is Freedom Week the biggest event that you guys put on? Well, it's not the biggest event in terms of uh, numbers, because as I say, you know, we, are, we uh, do provide uh, meals and accommodations for people during that week. And so we're limited to how many people. We also yeah, I'm not sure that we would want to host a Freedom Week for a thousand people if we could, because that becomes very much just lecture based, and we're looking to arrange conversations. So in terms of numbers, Freedom Week is 35 to 40 people generally, and we will have classroom uh, lectures during the school year. That you know, a really good one for us is 90 or 100 people, and some have gone uh, above that number. But it is, I think, the most important, it's the most intensive um, thing that we do. It's the kind of thing that people will email me or message me years after the fact and say, my life is different and I'm a different person than I would have been if I had not gone to Freedom Week. And it's really hard, uh, I would say almost impossible, to have that impact through a one-hour lecture given in a classroom with a lot of other people. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Well, I know uh, some people that have been through uh, Freedom Week and your internship program. They are all much younger than myself, um, but uh, they all speak very highly of it for sure. Um, Now, so you hear a lot these days about uh, campus culture. Um, I think a lot of it is overrated. I think me and you have even talked about that in the past, but, you know, about the uh, kind of woke leftism stuff on campuses. Um, but what are, what are some of the challenges that you guys face promoting classical liberal ideas in Canada and specifically at Canadian universities? Yeah, um, I certainly agree with you. And again, we've, we've talked about this a little bit before about uh, you know, the, the horror stories 
that uh, that you may hear about university campuses are generally horror stories because they are rare. So, you know, universities are not indoctrination uh, factories that are just looking to, you know, brainwash students en masse. I think, by and large, the vast majority of professors are honestly committed to intellectual uh, you know, exploration, the discussion of ideas, and that sort of thing. The problem that universities face is they have a bit of a political monoculture. Um, exactly why that is is sort of a really interesting question. People like Hayek and, and Nozick and others have sort of tried to explain that. But survey after survey will show that uh, university faculty tend to be left of center on the political spectrum. And they tend to be, to my view, too confident, too limited in their thinking to government solutions to all problems. So we want to point out all sorts of great ideas and interesting ways in which we can use non-government institutions and even just individuals to sort of address these problems. And that can be a, can be a strange idea to people who are not familiar with it. So I'll, you know, to give one example, we've had uh, one uh, talk, well, one speaker give, give a number of talks um, at universities in Ontario and in Quebec, arguing that uh, sweatshops are not more morally problematic. Now, that seems like a really strange idea to a lot of people. And so you can imagine if you just saw that on a poster or someone emailed it to you, you might think, wow, what sort of you know, fringe view is this? Now, the argument that sweatshops themselves are not morally problematic hinges on the idea that this is the best option that a lot of people have. So if you're working in a sweatshop, so long as you're not chained to the desk and they're not you know, seizing your papers and making you stay, and if they are, then it's wrong, that's morally problematic. What most people mean by sweatshops is like low-wage work. And so, yeah, working for you know, a few dollars a day really sucks. But if you're choosing to do it, it's because the alternative is even worse. Some cases, it's things like child prostitution or picking through garbage dumps to earn even less money. So our challenge is to sort of you know, come up with ways to reach people and sort of get them in the door to have a conversation, to explain ideas. Um, and it can be difficult just when you're trying to talk to an audience who's sort of not necessarily familiar with the ideas. One thing that we will often sort of get from people is the expression that, you know, when I signed up for this, I was a little concerned. Uh, I didn't know what it was going to be. I wasn't sure what it was going to be, but I was so interested in the topic. How could anyone make this argument or that argument? And then they come in and they say, you know, I really enjoyed it. It was different. It was open. It was welcoming. The idea that seemed radical at first, after 20 minutes of explanation, actually seemed much more sensible. And our goal is not necessarily to have people leave the room agreeing with the speaker, but it's the understanding of the idea to understand that other point of view. And that is what I think is so important and so often missing. Yeah. No, yeah. No, that's very cool. Um, so let, let's, uh, why don't you tell the listeners where they can find you guys and where they can follow you and how they can support you? Absolutely. Thank you. So liberalstudies.ca is our website. That's sort of the main place to go. You can find information on various programs and things like that. For any students who uh, are listening, uh, applications for Freedom Week, which this year takes place August 8th to the 13th at McGill, are still open on our website. We're just in the process of confirming our last couple faculty members. 
uh, but we'll be taking applications for the next little while. Um, there's a donate button on the website. We're a registered educational charity, so we do issue tax credits and uh, tax receipts for donations. Love to have uh, that support. Um, again, you can find a lot of our stuff on Zoom. Um, you can find notices on those uh, events, um, both Facebook and Twitter. If you look for Institute for Liberal Studies, you should find us pretty easily. And again, I'll mention our podcast, The Curious Task. Uh, we're on all major podcast platforms. If you can't find us there, go to the liberalstudies.ca website and you'll find us on the podca- podcast tab. And of course, we do have a Patreon, like all good podcasts. So if you like the podcast and want to support that directly, you can do that through Patreon. Awesome. Uh, just so the listeners know, I like to donate to the Institute for Liberal Studies. Highly, highly recommend supporting them. Uh, thanks a lot for coming on, Matt. Thanks, Darcy. It's always a pleasure to chat. That was Matt Bufton from the Institute for Liberal Studies. You can follow me on Twitter at Darcy Giroux. And to make sure that you never miss an episode of the Darcy Giroux podcast, subscribe on Substack. Substack.